Happy Father's Day, fathers. I uh, don't know if you noticed, but I snuck into the kitchen to see what was going down, and there's donuts for later, just so you know. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good deal. Moms get flowers, dads get donuts. Uh, I think I'd rather be on church Father's Day now. We've had a uh, good conversation in the last uh, two days. Balcony conversation. Balcony in the sense that it's reflective conversation. It's not reactive conversation where we live most of our lives. But reflective rather in kind of stepping back and, and um, taking maybe a bigger, um, longer look, like from a balcony. Uh, for two years, Judy and I lived on the 17th floor of an apartment in Osborne Village in, in uh, Winnipeg. And he used to say, up there, I could look out on my balcony and if I was the Pope, I could do the blessing over the whole village. I had, a, I, I had, a, I had quite a perspective. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're kind of step up to the balcony and uh, get a bigger view of uh, the ministry of the church and what it is and what it could be. Great conversation. Thanks for those of you who were a part of that, and you may well be uh, feeling somewhat weary uh, after speaking truth with candor. Uh, there is an emotional toll for sure that we pay, and you might be weary this morning, and that's that's good. I do bring you greetings from uh, our conference superintendent, Jeff Anderson. Uh, you may know that uh, his wife, Darlene, has... Uh, uh, there's been a tumor that they discovered, brain tumor that they discovered, and she had surgery on Wednesday, gamma knife uh, surgery on Wednesday. There's been two things. There's been this tumor, and there's been this, what they call dead ear, this roaring in her ear that's been going on for, oh, I don't know, more than six months. And... Um, the uh, doctor who's doing the surgery says, I don't think it's related. I think even though we remove the tumor, it's not going to impact the ear. Uh, so our prayer has been, and we invite you to join us in prayer for her, that um, the roaring would stop uh, with the removal of, uh, of this tumor. Jeff is leading us uh, well as a conference, and many of you uh, probably know him. Uh, the emphasis more recently has been in church planting, if you were at AGM or saw the results of that. We have committed as a conference to uh, plant one new church a year, as well as uh, adopt another church a year. Um, that's pretty aggressive uh, kind of church growth strategy, don't you think? Uh, for a conference that probably for... Um, Oh, some of you would know this better than me. I've only been around the covenant for uh, about 12 years. But a conference that's been running 20-somethings, I think we've got 27 churches, and I think when I started, I think there was 23 uh, 12 years ago. So for a conference that's been running 20-some churches probably for the last 50 years, to now say we're going to uh, grow by two churches per year from here on in is uh, is a pretty aggressive. And part of our longing... Uh, uh, for that, of course, is to impact more communities. Because we found that that uh, one of the most effective ways of growing new Christians, and you would know this if you've been a part of this, uh, has been with a church plant. One of the most effective ways of adding new people into the family of God is through new church uh, starts. And so that's part of this commitment. So uh, 
there's a new church plant started uh, last year, Evan DeWalt in Strathmore. I was there a couple of weeks ago, uh, about 50 people that meet there on a Sunday night in a school. Uh, so that's a new church start. Uh, John Chow uh, in uh, Avenue Community in Mississauga is uh, being adopted in. It's a small church group um, that is uh, joining up with the covenant. A faith covenant church in Winnipeg has uh, just kind of uh, started a new church. I was going to say new site. Do you call this site or do you call this new church when you started this? Site. I don't know exactly what they're doing. I just know that Gavin, who was on staff there for five years, uh, has moved to another community with about 30 people and starting a new church, I guess. Uh, so that's kind of the thing that's happening uh, with our conference. But what, what we're also trying to do is, is, is to not only start new churches, but we've recognized over the years that as we started new churches, we've been closing churches as well. And uh, so we've got a twofold kind of focus that we're trying to do is, is let's start new churches, but let's also make sure that the missional momentum in our established churches continues as well. And that's part of my role in the conference. I'm the director of Congregational Vitality and uh, meeting, uh, gathering with churches and trying to uh, help them to assess where they are. That's what's been happening here this weekend. How do you see your church? What's your longing? And how do we move towards a greater stronger um, missional momentum. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. God loves the church. Huh? God loves the church. Wherever it meets, whenever it meets, whatever that gathering looks like, the church is God's idea. It's God's best idea for creating Christ followers. It's God's best idea for passing on the values of the kingdom. It's God's best idea for forming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's his best idea of making our world a better place. It's his best idea of how we could be inspired and motivated to change the world, as Johnny Reed sings, huh? Today, I'm going to try to change the world. That's God's best idea, is the church. That it's through the church that the change begins to come. Gary Nelson in his book, Borderland Churches, says this. He says, he, God, called the church to be a peculiar people set apart for the mission of fleshing out a taste of what it might be like in the world if God's reign of justice and righteousness were a reality. The church is to be a taste of what it might be like if God was actually in charge. That's the idea. It's, it's a, obviously it takes a little bit more than Sunday mornings. It takes more than some songs and a sermon and some prayers to change the world, right? It takes an incredible amount of creativity and trying to connect with community and reaching out to others who do not as yet uh, know Christ, who not as yet are followers of Jesus and do not as yet know this incredible longing, this incredible life that he has designed, planned, hoped for them as he has for all of us. A couple of years ago, uh, Judy and I were had uh, offered to her parents that we would uh, take them on a winter vacation and um, they could choose wherever they would like to go. Um, I mean, they paid their way. We just would go with them. I think we paid our own way. Uh, <laughs> Just to make sure you got the right idea. <laughs> we're just going with. Uh, but it was their choice about where to go. And uh, 
it was obviously determined, this was uh, January, February, so it was determined that it was going to be somewhere warm. But what was hard for them was to, to decide where to go. I mean, uh, her mom loves water, so she wanted beach somewhere. And uh, dad doesn't care so much for water. Uh, he likes information and stuff and uh, technology. And so you may guess where we went. Uh, so we ended up there in, in Florida. Uh, with a couple of days in Disneyland for, uh, or Disney World rather, for dad, and uh, Cocoa Beach for mom was great. But I say that to introduce this. I don't know if you know the story of the origin of Disney World. Um, it's not in their brochures, uh, but the story goes like this. Walt Disney, after he built Disneyland in California, began to imagine another project. The last years of his visionary life were consumed with the goal of solving the problems facing the world's cities. And even back in the 60s, he wanted to use the advances of science and technology and industry and urban design. And so with this dream, he purchased 47 acres of Florida wilderness. And um, his idea was not to reproduce a West Coast theme park. But his dream was to build a fully functioning city of the future. And as you know, he called it Epcot. Experimental prototype community of tomorrow. The symbol of that dream is still there. Spaceship Earth. In his uh, last film, Walt Disney revealed his plan for Epcot. And that included schools and a residential neighborhoods, parks, churches, advanced public transportation, skyscrapers, sports arenas. And he said, and I quote, Epcot would always be in a state of becoming. It will never cease to be a living blueprint of the future where people actually live a life that they can't find in a place anywhere else in the world. That was the dream. That was the hope. In, in Walt Disney's imagination, in his mind, um, Epcot had already become a reality. He could, he could already see it. He could envision it. All he needed to do was build it. He even knew how he was going to collect the garbage. But when he died unexpectedly, in uh, 1966, the, um, the managers didn't know what to do with Wall Street. Because they had thought that his dream was so fantastical that it could never be built, that it could never be done. They didn't share his dream. And so, when Walt died, the question was, so now what? What are we going to do? And rather than building a city unlike any other in the world, company executives built what they could envision, <clears throat> another theme park. Not much different than Disneyland. They could only envision what they had already done before. And the grand city of tomorrow 
was never created. So in 1982, when Epcot opened, little remained of Wall Street except the symbol, Spaceship Earth. Rather than residents commuting to work that day, instead of a new life, there were thousands of tourists who entered another theme park. I don't know how that grabs you, but boy, when I read that, I thought, ah, how sad, how unfortunate. Such a great dream, such a great imagination, left to die along with the dreamer. And I began to think about us, and I think too often we as Christ followers, too often we as churches, instead of dreaming, can I say this? What we lack maybe is not the resources. What we lack is maybe not the ability. I think what we often lack is the creativity, the imagination of doing things in a new way. We lack the imagination for maybe what Christ would want to do in our life. We lack the imagination maybe of how Christ will want to use us, use our lives uh, in the community, use our church maybe in the community. We lack the imagination of, of what we could become. And so too often, like the stockholders of Disney, we just um, do things like we've done, right? Does this resonate with you at all? Here's my story. Curious. Curious, isn't it? Stephen Covey in his book says, all things are created twice. First in the imagination and then in our lives. If we do not develop our self-awareness and become responsible for our first creations, our imaginations, we empower other people and our circumstances outside of our circle of influence to shape much of our lives by default. What's he saying? If we don't choose our path through our God-given imagination and dreams, then those voices from the past or those voices around us um, can I say force us, push us to be who they imagine us to be and do. In other words, we either choose to live our dreams, God's dreams for us, dreams with imagination and creativity. We either live God's dream for us or we live the dreams maybe of others. So it leads me to this thought. And this is kind of where I want to go this morning. That the thing that's going to make the biggest difference in my life from here on in and yours, the thing that's going to make the biggest difference in the life of, of Belfort Church 
thing that's going to make the biggest difference in your life. Whether it's going to be an adventure that's exciting and hopeful as you move ahead or not, I think becomes really comes down to what I think is really a, a pretty basic choice. And it's this. It's whether we choose to move ahead in faith or whether we choose to live in fear. Faith, faith, or fear. It actually seems like from Scripture, it seems like the two choices have a um, pretty predictable kind of result. When am I supposed to be done, by the way? When I'm done. Are we all good with that? Mostly? Okay. Okay. Here's a story of faith. You know the story. Hebrews chapter 11. You know the story. Here's what happens in faith. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for, what we can imagine, right? What we can imagine, the confidence that what we can imagine will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we can't see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible. It is impossible to please God without faith. Impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek after him. People of faith like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, their, their lives weren't somehow shielded from adversity, right? You read the rest of that chapter and you see they experienced all the adversity that everyone experiences. But they chose in the middle of that adversity to believe God, to trust God, to walk with him. They did not trust their eyes alone. They did not just look at the natural things. They were hopeful and expectant people, believing that God was at work and working things out in their lives, even though they could not as yet see it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like what God says to him, that he is at work in all things, right? that he is at work in all things 
for our good. For who? For those who would love him and trust him. So here's the deal, right? My responsibility, our responsibility is two things. Our responsibility is to love him and to trust him, right? And his responsibility is what? To work at good, all, to work in all things, in all things, for our good. You know this. That doesn't doesn't mean all things are good. It's kind of like chocolate cake. Anybody like chocolate cake? You like chocolate cake? I love chocolate cake. I can't have it anymore since my concussions. I had three concussions some years ago. It um, chocolate cake is now a trigger, so it's an instant headache for me. But I think I had my quota before this happened, so I'm all good. Let's talk about chocolate cake. What goes into... Anybody good at making chocolate cake? What goes into chocolate cake? There's flour. What else? Cocoa. Eggs. What else? Sugar. Sugar. Oh, sugar's all right. Most of those things that go into chocolate cake, you don't like them by themselves, do you? Flour? Ah, not crazy about that. Raw eggs? My brother-in-law used to take that when he was losing his hair, but not real good for taste, I don't think. But here's the deal, right? Here's the deal. You know this. You mix all that stuff together. The end result is awesome. The end result is chocolate cake. See, that's what God is saying in Romans 8. He is saying, no, not all those things that happen in your life are good. But if you love me, and if you will walk with me, and if you will trust me, and if you will live by faith as a congregation together and as an individual, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make chocolate cake. Maybe what we should have is chocolate cake up here every Sunday, huh? I was thinking about that for sanctuary, actually. Did you, <laughs> did, did, did you hear about the woman who said, bury me with my fork? Did you hear about her? Yeah. You heard about her. You know why, right? She said, when, when you put me in that casket, put a fork in my hand. Why? Because she always said to her friends after the meal was done, hang on to your fork. Why? There's dessert coming. The best is yet to come. Maybe we should have forks in church too. I don't know. Right? So we need, we need some tangible reminders of, of what this life of faith is like and, and how God constantly is thinking about, about good for us. How do we do this? Well, Stephen Covey has this thought, and I think others have, have uh, talked about it as well. They, t- they talk about the fact that we need to start from today looking at the end of our life. And look at the end of our life and see what we want or think about what we want the end of our life to look like. In other words, he says this, imagine your funeral. I woke up a couple of weeks ago and started writing out my funeral service. I don't know what that was about. I shared it with my church and they thought I was kind of queer and quacky and I maybe am. But it just kind of came to me. I said, oh, these are some songs. I think these are some people I'd like to speak. It's bizarre, isn't it? Anyway, funeral. Think about your funeral. Think about what, who would you like to have speak at your funeral? Think about what you would want them to say. Your kids. Your friends. 
people that you work with maybe. And he's saying, and begin to become the kind of person to be the kind of friend that you want your friend to have, huh? To be the kind of brother that you want your brother to have or sister, right? It's intentionality. Changing our behaviors to follow this dream of faith. This person that God wants us to be. Our uh, chairperson at Sanctuary is one such person, Emma Brinson. Some of you heard her at conference. Emma um, was diagnosed with colon cancer back in September and um, very quickly had uh, major surgery, um, has been uh, on chemo treatments every two weeks whenever her tests are such that she can. She had number 11 of 12 of her chemo treatments uh, yesterday, Friday. Uh, almost through it, and she was saying to me, Jerry, I hope this works. I do too. But she's got this incredible spirit with her. When she was taking uh, one of those treatments, uh, you know, she gets sicker than a dog in these treatments, and you know about that. And she says, Jerry, you'd never believe, I met the parents of, she was a teacher, a retired teacher. She said, I met the parents of, of one of my kids who was in grade three many years ago. Uh, was there in the bed beside me when we were recovering. Isn't God good to put her there for me? You know, sicker than a dog, could have been complaining, ah, and yet she's thinking about, wow, look what God did for me. Ah, he put this person there just for me so that we could have that conversation today. Person of faith. What does fear look like? Well, you know the story of fear. It's the classic story of the children of Israel and the leaving of the promised land. Had been slaves, as you know, for 400 years. They'd spent two years crossing the desert. It shouldn't have taken that long, except that when you're moving a million people, it takes a while. They, they uh, get up to the edge of the promised land, and they've been two years in the wilderness, and they're ready to go in that land that God has promised them. And Moses says, before we go in, let's uh, kind of get a scouting group. Let's have a look. And let's see what's in this land. And you come back and tell me about how to best move in, how to best occupy the land. And he sends them in and they go in and they look at everything. And, and, uh, and, and then there comes back this report, right? There's this majority report and there's this minority report. There's this majority report of the 12 spies. Ten of them said, no way are we going in. This land, this land is scary land. There's giants in that land. They have fortified cities. I mean, we look like grasshoppers. We see ourselves as grasshoppers compared to them. There's no way we can go into this land. The question wasn't, should we go into this land or not? The question was, let's have a look at the land, right? And there was only two people, as you know, who gave that other report and said, yes, we can do it. Sure, it's, uh, it's going to be a challenge. Sure, it's going to be a struggle. But, but let's go into this land because God's calling us into this. We can do this. Let's do this together. And they began to, you know, one of the things that caught me as I was reading that last, uh, this last week, one of the things that caught me, did, did, did you, have you ever caught this? That when they were scouting through this land, they found a cluster of grapes. One cluster of grapes. That was so huge that they stuck a pole through it and it took two men to carry 
one. <laughs> I'm having grapes. Like, you would know more about grapes than I do. Isn't that, isn't that absolutely phenomenal? One cluster. Should this not have been a bit of a hint to them of what God wanted to bless them with? Should this not have been a bit of a hint of the extravagance of their God? But, but, most of them did not look through the eyes of faith. In Numbers chapter 14, gives us a bit of a picture of what happens when we choose fear over faith. Verse 1. When they gathered together, then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Came to this report, Let's not do it. Let's not do it. They agreed to not do it. The result of that is that whole community began weeping aloud and they cried all night. And their voices rose in great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron, their leaders. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to the country only to have us die in the battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. You see the fear? You hear that fear? Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? And then they plotted amongst themselves. Let's choose a new leader. And let's go back. Let's go back to Egypt. What does fear do? Fear makes us miserable. Fear makes us miserable. There are three parts to this pity party here. And they're all in these verses. There's crying, complaining, and second-guessing. Whenever we are crying and complaining and second-guessing, it's one of the marks that fear is getting a hold of us. And our fear infects others. Our fear disappoints God. You know what happened. He was ready to give up on these people. If it hadn't been for Moses' intervention, he was wanting to wipe them out. Crazy, but Moses said, now God, you can't do that. What are the other nations going to say if you wipe out your own people? They're going to say, oh, your God's not big enough. He can't take care of you. He can't get you into the land he said he was. Right? Fear is always worse than the thing we fear itself. Always. Do you remember that uh, great theologian, John Wayne? Do you remember him? Remember what he said about fear? Actually, he said this about courage. He said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. My favorite John, movie, John Wayne movie, and here's where I quit. True Grit. No True Grit? That old John Wayne movie, remember at the, 
near the end of that movie, he's got these bad guys at the one end of the field. There's like five of them. And he's alone on the other end of the field. And he's galloping and he's turning his horse around. And so now they're facing each other. And they're thinking he's going to run. They're thinking there's no way. He's a coward, Rooster Colburn is. But you know what he does, right? He takes the reins of that horse and he puts them in his teeth. He grabs one gun off of one side and another gun off the other side. And he gets that horse charging and the other guys are coming at him and they're going at each other and there are guns blazing. He's thinking this. If I'm going down, I'm going down in a blaze of glory. I will not give in to fear. Will not. There's times in our lives, folks, when that's what it takes. We put the reins in our teeth and face it. Come what may, I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in to this fear, to this anxiety. I guess if there's nothing else, I hope we get this today. That faith or fear is a choice. It's not that people of faith or circumstances is easier or better. It's a choice. It's a choice that we make. And faith will lead us to a legacy of Hebrews chapter 11. We will leave a legacy. We will leave a legacy. Everybody does. We get to choose the kind of legacy that we leave. My prayer is, my hope is, that we will choose, that we'll choose faith. Father, as your people process your word, these stories, I'm asking that you would simply help them to remember the things that you want to nudge and lodge in their hearts. May that stay. May that come back to their hearts and minds again and again. This longing that you have for us to choose faith in all of our situations in life, in all our difficulties, so that we may have this chocolate cake. That you might be able to work in all things for our good and for your glory. We thank you through Jesus. Amen.